0: Shortly after the Protestant Reformation across Europe began, Thomas Munzer rose to prominence as a fiery preacher in the Anabaptist tradition. Uh, though it's not entirely fair to paint with such a broad brush, for simplicity's sake, uh, Munzer and other Anabaptists were spiritists when it came to divine revelation. Um, by that I mean, generally speaking, that they didn't see a need for careful exegesis of the Bible, and said they only needed the Holy Spirit to guide them. Munzer... And other Anabaptists were anti-governmental. And it was no doubt the combination of these impulses, a kind of lack of care in reading the scriptures, uh, and these anti-governmental impulses, uh, that badly led Munzer to misunderstand Psalm 149. According to uh, one prominent Christian scholar, Thomas Munzer stirred up the war of the peasants by means of this psalm. It seems that Munzer may have taken the language concerning swords and songs as justification for marching into battle with a physical sword in his hand and a song in his mouth. In his context, he viewed, quote, both the civil and religious leaders as godless enemies to be defeated. He proudly placed himself in battle, but it did not go well for him or for many of the peasants. On May the 15th in 1525, Munzer was captured, tried, tried. And beheaded. To be clear, uh, we at Arlington Baptist are not descended from Munzer and the Anabaptist tradition. Uh, rather, we emerged from the English Baptists in the lineage of uh, Benjamin Keach and others. But uh, again, uh, given that we're studying Psalm 149 this morning, it's my prayer that we would do our due diligence in understanding this psalm correctly. We should hope not to misunderstand Psalm 149 as badly as Munzer did. And it is a real challenge for us to faithfully understand this word and to carry it out from the Lord. We are in the midst of convention and election season. And there is a real danger to hear the rhetoric of both parties to absorb their bravado and boasts and to be taken in by the lie that their victory will certainly secure a brighter future. There's a temptation, subtle though it may be, to find solidarity with one party or another, and forget that our ultimate allegiance belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. There is the temptation to forget that Christ's kingdom will not be brought in by ballots, but by being busy wielding the sword of God's Word in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And may God give us a true, right, and faithful understanding of this psalm, Psalm 149 this morning. For when all is said and done, when it's all over, we want to have the right sword In our hands. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, to turn in your Bible to Psalm 149. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 526. We've reached our final psalm in this scattered series of psalms this summer that began back in July, and with it, we've come to the second to last psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 149. The psalms, uh, as you may know, are a collection of 150 praises and prayers and petitions proclamations and songs of the ancient people of God. As a whole, the Psalms teach us that the people of Israel were prayerfully and patiently awaiting the arrival of God's Messiah and King and His bringing about God's kingdom. As a whole, the Psalms teach us that God is to be worshipped. They began with God blessing man, and they conclude with man blessing God. We see that, as Derek mentioned, as The last five of the psalms are all hallelujah psalms. They're all psalms that call for the praise of the Lord. Go ahead, let's read Psalm 149 now. Praise the Lord Yahweh. Sing to the Lord Yahweh a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in His maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise His name with dancing, making melody to Him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord Yahweh takes pleasure in In his people, he adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two edged swords in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord Yahweh. Well, this psalm it clearly commands the praise of the Lord Yahweh. You see that right there at the top and the tail. Yahweh's praise is commanded beginning there in verse 1 and at the end in verse 9. Not only that, several times in between the the godly ones are commanded to sing praise and give him glory and dance and to make melody. So here's the here's the message of Psalm 149 in a single sentence. If you wanted to boil it down, this is what I think it is. Praise the Lord. For he delights in and delivers his people. Praise the Lord. For he delights in and delivers his people. This psalm, it has three movements. And we're going to unpack this psalm according to its three movements. In verses 1 to 3, we're commanded to praise our God with a new song. In the assembly of the godly with joy and gladness. And then in verse 4, this is the second movement, we're told why. Why are we to praise the Lord? We praise him because he takes pleasure in his people. And then the third and final movement of the song is found there in verses 5 to 9, where God's people are once again commanded to exult in God for our victory in the end is sure. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline of the rest of the sermon. Three simple points. Divine praise, divine delight, and divine victory. Divine praise, divine delight, and divine victory. Let's begin with our first point, divine praise. And as we do, let's just read again. Verses 1 to 3. Beginning there in verse 1. Praise the Lord Yahweh. Sing to the Lord Yahweh a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in His maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise His name with dancing. Making melody to Him with tambourine and lyre. Well these verses, they're tightly compacted. They issue a command to praise. Thus, praise the Lord. They tell us what that praise is to involve, a new song. They tell us who is to receive this praise, Israel's maker and king. And how that praise is to be delivered with exuberance and joy. And where that praise is to take place in the assembly. Well, the initial opening command, it's a simple and accurate translation of the phrase hallelujah, praise Yahweh. Whenever you see those capital letters LRD there in your Bibles, that's what's underneath That word, Yahweh. That's His covenant name, His faithful name for His people. The name that He gave to Himself and revealed. Praise the Lord. It's an energetic way to begin a psalm, isn't it? It's an imperative. It's a command. This is something that we are to obey and do. But what what does it mean to praise Yahweh, to hallelujah? Well, to praise the Lord means to ascribe to God His worth and weightiness. If God, if our God has a kind of gravitas in our world... And He does, then He should have it in our lives. And it should be on our lips. In fact, that's how this psalmist tells us to praise Yahweh. He tells us to sing to Yahweh a new song. To put a song on our lips. Now, singing to Yahweh is not the only way that He may be praised, but it's certainly how this psalm commands us to praise the Lord. The Scriptures command God's people to sing. So you cannot come to church and keep your mouth closed when the people of God sing and you cannot mouth the words either it doesn't matter how bad your voice is you are commanded to sing and don't try to pull any of this some um, but this is an old covenant command kind of nonsense on me okay look the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 17 says that we're to address one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs and then in Colossians chapter three, 16 we're told something similar Paul tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You come to church, you gather with God's people, and you're commanded to sing. God's people are to sing praise to God. But specifically, do you see what they're commanded to sing there? They're commanded to sing a new song, not any old song, a new song. This phrase, it emerges no less than six times in the Psalter as a whole. Well, what does it mean? It means that the the song is Freshly written in response to a divine victory of God. Think, for example, of the new song that Moses and the people of Israel sang after their exodus from Egypt, right? They sang a song that they had not sung before. They sang, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider He has thrown into the sea. That was a divine victory of God that was followed and commemorated by a new song. So what's the divine victory that the people of Israel are to sing? What new song are they to sing in response to connect, uh, in connection with Psalm 149? Well, some scholars believe that this psalm is situated after the people of Israel's return from exile and captivity. So they'd be celebrating uh, that return in, in, uh, from, from exile. But others believe that this psalm looks forward in faith. It's prospective. It's looking forward to that last day When all of God's enemies will have been defeated. When God is victorious and God's people will have been vindicated. And when we come to the latter portion of the psalm, really the third movement, verses 5 to 9, I think that we'll see that this is precisely the case. That the new song that Psalm 149 has in view is that God's people are being commanded to sing in response to God's consummated victory over all things. Here the people of Israel are being called to sing that new song prospectively. In faith, they're being commanded to sing in faith that one day Yahweh's divine victory and their final deliverance will have been accomplished. In fact, the, the book of Revelation, it twice mentions a, a new song that this company in heaven sings to God. Listen to Revelation 5 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We're told something similar actually in Revelation chapter 14 verse 3. But there's a sense that even today that we, we gathered here, that we sing a new song in celebration of Jesus' victory over sin and death and the grave. There's also a sense in which we, we sing prospectively, right? Looking forward in faith to that last day. We, we sing of that final day often. It's actually how we'll conclude the service. In the service, we'll conclude singing when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. Right? We're thinking then of the Lord Jesus' final victory there. So we sing also prospectively in faith. And, and did you catch where this new song is to take place? Do you see it there in the text? It's to take place in the corporate gathering of God's people. Or there in the words of verse 1 in the assembly of of the godly. Now, the root word for assembly here is kahal. It has a sense of assembly or company or congregation. And you'll never guess how, never guess how kahal is translated actually in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's translated ecclesia, which is the word that's used for congregating and gathering in the New Testament. It's the word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he says that he will build his church. Now, I want to take a moment and offer a pastoral aside here just camping out on this word assembly especially given the season that we're in presently as a society I want to underscore the importance of the assembling of God's people the gathering of God's people in the New Testament is not just a fad Uh, God's people have been gathering weekly ever since God made them a people and God's resting one day in seven showed us that God's people were to have worshipful communion with him on a weekly basis Right, The height of the creation week is not when God made man and woman, but when God called them into communion with Him and resting with Him and worshiping Him on the seventh day. That is where we achieve our telos and end as creatures, bringing glory to God as those made in His image. As I said, the gathering of God's people is not just some New Testament fat, as if it really could be a fat, and not a fiat command given by the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 10 24 and 25 but here's what I do know assemblies must assemble Christian assemblies must assemble and do what God's command assembling is really the defining characteristic of an assembly so in the membership course this morning we, we thought about the importance of assembling of congregating together because that's actually where community grows out of it grows out of us getting together And getting to know one another. And having continued fellowship even outside of this gathering. So our community as a church together, it grows out of our congregating. And it's important that we keep assembling and faithfully trusting the Lord. Now, perhaps you spotted that word godly there at the end of verse 1 and you hesitated. Maybe you thought to yourself like, look, I'm a Christian, but I'm hesitant to apply that word godly to myself. That's understandable to a certain degree. And yet the word godly does not mean sinless or perfect. After all, we're talking about Israel here. And they had a lot of troubles in the Old Testament. And we know our own lives. We have a lot of troubles too. This description of God's people as godly, it turns up several times in this psalm, verse 1, verse 5, and verse 9. It's the Hebrew word. The word of the Hebrew is hasadim, with the root word being related to hesed. Uh, Perhaps you've heard of God's hesed love for His people. His faithful, loyal, covenant love for His people. And what the psalmist is trying to say here is that those who are faithful to God, they sing His praise. God's people are godly not because of the things that we have done, but because of what God has done. God has claimed us as His own and bought us with the blood of His beloved Son. God has made His people godly. We should certainly sin less and sing more, That surely a mark of godliness. We should sing more because God has assembled us among His people for His praise. We should sing more because of because our God has made us and because He rules us. Did you notice that there in verse two? We prayed about this earlier in the service. Our brother Dennis was just leading us in a meditation on this text in our prayer. Verse two tells us who God is and who we are. It tells us who is to be praised and why it is our privilege to praise Him. Yahweh is our Maker. Now we know that Yahweh is more than the maker of Israel. He's the maker of all things. And in fact, part of me wants to stop and ask some children in our congregation questions like Who made you? Uh, what else did God make? Why did God make you and all things? But maybe we'll just say that for a conversation at the door later. The, the point is that the psalmist tells us that Yahweh is Israel's maker. He's communicating something rich in meaning. Here we're reminded. That Yahweh he brought Israel into existence. He called Abraham out of Ur. He multiplied his offspring. He delivered them out of Egypt. He entered into a covenant with them and made them into a great nation. God's people did not make themselves. God's people never make themselves. God made them and he made them his children. One of the Psalms scholars pointed out that the phrase, the children of Zion, is a term of endearment. It's expressing benevolence and love. Israel belongs to God, is beloved by God. In Israel, Israel is also to be ruled by God. After all, Yahweh is not only Israel's maker, but he's also their king. God certainly gave Israel human kings to rule, but they were always meant to be representatives of God's rule over them. God's rule was embodied in his law of love. And what's clear from the scripture is that he, he is a king of love. Israel is here called to be glad in her maker and to rejoice in her king. Israel is to deliver her song of praise with exuberance and instruments. That much is clear there in verse 3. The gladness and joy of God's people is to be shown by dancing and making melody with tambourine and lyre. And this is where Reforms types, we Reforms types, get nervous. Right? We, as was mentioned a moment ago. The, uh, the picture here is likely one of celebrating a victory of God. And the clue to that is actually the dancing. Uh, yes, there's dancing in the Bible. Um, we're not talking about or looking at kind of the, the couples dancing that we often uh, think about. We're not looking at the Macarena or the cha-cha slide. Uh, but the electric slide. No. Um, we're looking here at joyful dancing, like that of David, dancing before the, the Ark of God as it was brought into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. There was dancing after great military battles, like when Miriam danced after the Exodus. And you remember, there was a new song associated with that, Victory too. And we, re, we, uh, we read about it a little bit earlier. There was also dancing and singing after David defeated Goliath. So listen to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6 when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath. When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And really that's what we're seeing here. A celebration of a divine victory. And note too, as I just read 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 6, there's mention of singing and dancing, and tambourines, and musical instruments. That's what we're seeing here in psalm 149 verse 3 so we see dancing in connection with victories but honestly we don't really see dancing in connection with tabernacle or temple worship we don't see uh dancing in the early church either look if you um if you want to cut a rug and there's some rug here for you to cut uh if you want to cut a rug i'm moderately okay with that i'm not going to stop you i think i know a guy who does who will uh he sits on the piano side but um it's probably just not going to be me um Whatever the case may be, remember that we've gathered here to worship our Maker and King. So, so our attention, it needs to be on Him and not on you. You want to dance? Well, just don't distract or detract from the worship of God. Remember, the opening and closing of this psalm is praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God is the audience of our worship. He's the focus of our praise. And the one who ought to receive all of our attention. And we really should rejoice and sing praise to God. Our worship, our singing, our praying, it ought to be filled with great joy. We really should rejoice, right? The Lion of Judah, he has conquered the grave. The Lamb who was slain has ransomed the slave. This is wonderful news for us. We ought to rejoice as people from every tongue and tribe. We ought to rejoice in the salvation of our great King. These three verses, they command us to give our praise to the Lord. They call us to sing a new song in the assembly of God's people. They commission us to praise God as our maker and king, and they challenge us to deliver it with joy and exuberance. These verses are filled with excitement. In our English translations, we see the the punctuation marks, and that's appropriate. We ought to be happy about who our God is and what He has done for us and for our salvation. Hasn't God been exceedingly kind to call us into the assembly of God's people? Hasn't God been exceedingly kind to make us and to remake us in the image of His beloved Son? Hasn't God been kind to us, not to leave us as orphans, but to make us and adopt us as His children? If this were not enough, Psalm 149, it tells us something more about God's loving heart toward us. It tells us that He takes pleasure in us. And in verse 4, we find the heart of God. So let's turn and consider our second point, divine delight. And as we do, read, read verse 4. This is the, the, the verse that got to my heart all week long. For the Lord Yahweh takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. So in verses 1 to 3, we were commanded to praise our God with a new song in the assembly of the godly with joy and gladness. And now here in verse 4, we're told why. We're explicitly told why. Delight in your God and declare His praise because He delights in you. We love because He first loved us. We praise Him because of His pleasure in us. The psalmist, he's really been hinting at this all along. We belong to God as His godly ones. We've been made by God. We're His children. We're subjects in His kingdom. We've been told that what we are. And it's a privilege to be all of those things. To be His creation. To be His children. To be His subjects. But now we're told about how God feels about us as His people. Did you think that you were going to learn about how God feels about you when you came to church today? Did you, did you think that you were going to learn about God's heart towards you? What do you think about God's heart toward you? I just, um, I finished reading a book by Dane Ortland entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. So a lot of that's been swirling around in the back of my mind as I've been thinking about Psalm 149 verse 4. And one of the things that Ortland points out, and I think he's spot on in this, is that we have a hard time, even as believers in Jesus, we have a hard time believing, receiving, living as though God's word really says these kinds of things about us and that this is God's heart toward us. All throughout the Bible we're told about God's heart, about His love for His people. We're told that it's not cold and calculating but that His heart convulses with compassion toward us. It moves toward us in mercy that He longs for His people in love. We get one of these glimpses here in Psalm 149 verse 4. It's hard for us though to, to live and believe as though the Lord takes pleasure in His people. In us, And that word, uh, pleasure there in verse 4, it has a whole host of connotations. It especially has connotations of delight and enjoyment, as well as glad acceptance, approval and favor. God, He cherishes His children. But we have a hard time living and believing as though that this is really how God feels about us. We have a hard time believing that God's heart goes out toward us in loving, compassion, and pleasure. Listen to what Dane Ortlund said in one section in his book. I think it accurately describes how we often live and sometimes think. Ortlund writes this. Many of us tend to believe that God's love is infected with disappointment. He loves us, but it's a flustered love. We see him looking down on us with paternal affection, but with slightly raised eyebrows. We picture him wondering... How are they still falling short so much after all that I have done for them? And our shoulders and souls remain drooped in the presence of God. Let's be honest, that's accurate. That's an accurate picture of how we often think about God, isn't it? Think about how He feels toward us. He loves us, but He's kind of looking down on us in disappointment. This past week, maybe even this morning, you've wondered, how can God love me? How can the God who made the universe and all that is in it, how can He care about me? What is man that you are mindful of Him? How can the perfectly holy and righteous God love me? I mean, isn't Psalm 149 verse 4 startling, shocking even? The Lord takes pleasure in His people. Do you notice how personal this language is? The Lord takes pleasure in His people. I'm reminded of what we read in Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. At times we forget that passages like this are actually in the Bible. And that God tells us that He feels this way about us that God's heart yearns for His people, that He takes pleasure in us. Now, this is not how God feels about everyone. God does not take pleasure like this in everyone indiscriminately. Nobody does take pleasure in His people. And brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. He takes pleasure in you. He delights in you. He enjoys you. He cherishes you. And we often think that pleasure must come in connection with some sort of positive association or some kind of success. right? So think about a parent and child. right? A parent's heart swells with pride as he watches his child take their first steps, uh, slam a home run, score in soccer, swim their best time, slice through the paint, lay one in off the glass for an end one. Right? We can think about a apparent rejoicing and sw- heart swelling and pride when I mean, we think about this association with success or ascension to great heights but that's not that's not how God's love works it's not dependent upon our success or our ascension to great heights do you remember what God said to the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy 7 do you remember what he why God said he chose Israel he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 and 7 for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. That the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Right? God's people are not loved because they're great, because they're good. This reminds me about what Paul said about the church and to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 21, Paul wrote this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, "But the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are noble. God chose what was foolish. Thanks for that compliment, Paul, right? Psalm 149.4 tells us that God takes pleasure in his people, Not because they are high, but because what? Because they're low. You see that? Who does God adorn with salvation? He adorns the humble. And the humble in the Psalms are often the afflicted, the oppressed, the needy, those who are tormented by enemies, weak, those who are not able to help themselves. So spiritually speaking, this is who we are before the Lord. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are afflicted by the world. We are oppressed and harassed by the devil and his minions. And apart from Jesus, we are enslaved to sin and in need of deliverance. Our hearts, they're often filled. They're often filled with darkness and deceit and depravity. Our deeds are often filled with selfishness and sensuality and sin. Our mouths... Our words, they're often cold and cutting and cruel. And God, He sees it all. He sees it all. He sees even what we forget, what we've done, what we thought, what we felt. Our God sees it all. And what do the Scriptures say? Do they say, you know, after you've changed your thoughts, your words and your deeds, after you've changed them to be holy, God will love you. Is that what Scriptures say? Or do they say this? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 6. Don't the scriptures say, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 8. See, God does not show his love for us after we've gotten our lives all cleaned up and we're cured. No, he loves, he delights in the weary, the weak, and the wicked. He delights in people like you and me. We're spiritually dirty. We're defiled. We're unclean in the sight of God. God is our maker. He ought to be our king. But the truth is, is that we've all rebelled against our maker and king. We've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. We've decided to praise ourselves rather than praise God. All of this is what the Bible calls sin. And because of our sin, we're all in danger of facing the wrath of God. So how is it, how is it that we can be those whom God takes pleasure in, especially given that He's holy, just, and good and cannot tolerate sin? Well, Jesus is the answer. But because of God's good pleasure in us, because He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, because God foreknew and foreloved us, Romans chapter 8 verse 29, He sent His Son into the world to live the life that we've not lived. The Father sent the Son to fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus said at His baptism. And do you remember what the Father said from heaven? He said this in Matthew 3, 17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus Christ, He humbled Himself. He got low. He got under our burden of sin so that He might lift us up. Jesus, the righteous and sinless one, laid down his life for God's people. He died on the cross, bearing God's wrath against our sin. He was buried in a tomb. But three days later, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the grave, proving to us that all of our sins have been paid for and that we can be accepted as righteous in God's sight if we turn from our sins and place place our faith in Jesus Christ. We place ourselves under the one with whom the Father is well-pleased, and we become those with whom God is well-pleased. Before all eternity, God was pleased with His people in Christ, and in space and in time, we become those with whom God is well-pleased as we're united to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. So, friend, if you're here and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, I invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, to turn from your sin, to confess your sin, to humble yourself, and trust in Jesus and believe that God is pleased with you because of all that Jesus has done for you. And we must remember that God cherishes us as His people today. Remember what God sent His Son to do. Remember the words of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 27? Didn't the Father send the Lord Jesus to give Himself up for His people so that His bride, so that He might wash her, present her in splendor, and adorn her... In garments which have no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In fact, that word adorn carries with it the idea of beautifying. Making lovely, endowing with splendor. See, we don't make ourselves lovely. The Lord Jesus, He makes us lovely. He adorns us with salvation. Jesus continues to cherish us, to cleanse us, and to adorn us in His beauty. Though He has ascended to the right hand of the Father his heart still beats in love and pleasure for us. That's why he intercedes for us. It's why he sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to minister his love unto us. Now Christian, before I leave verse 4, I want to press it just a little bit more for some application. I want us to press that word humble. We ought to be humble as we come to Jesus for salvation. But we ought to continue in a posture of joyful humility throughout the whole course of our lives. We ought to seek to make joyful humility synonymous with Christianity. We ought to seek to make joyful humility synonymous with Christianity. So Christians ought not be known for boasting over others, but for bearing the burdens of others. We ought to be humble as we're trying to hunt down a package lost by the Postal Service, as we're waiting in line at the DMV, as we're discussing politics with our neighbors, as we're interacting with coworkers who we find ourselves in conflict with, or whether or not we're disagreeing over what to make of COVID, whatever we do, we ought to make it our aim to have the same humble spirit as our Savior. In verses 1 to 3, we were commanded to praise our God. And in verse 4, we're told why. In verses 5 to 9, we return to the command to praise because there is coming a divine victory. This is our third and final point divine victory read verses 5 to 9 again let the godly exult in glory let them sing for joy on their beds let the high praises of god be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written this is honor for all his godly ones praise the lord yahweh in these verses we return to a call to exalt sing praise and rejoice this time though swords are introduced with connection in connection with songs judgment and joy go hand in hand the people of god are given honor in judgment and the song concludes where it began with a call to praise what are we to make with all this seeming back and forth Remember what Thomas Munzer made of it all, that we should actually take up physical swords. Well, first we ought to understand that the psalmist is not simply opening the door to praise. You see these let, uh, these let phrases when the psalmist says, right, let the godly exult, let them sing, let high praises of God be in their throats. It's not as though he's being like permissive, like you, you may do this. Now he's actually being prescriptive. This is not really what they can do. It is, in fact, what they must do. When a victory has been achieved, the only appropriate response is to praise God, to, be, to celebrate it. Verse 5 flows out of verse 4. That word glory there in verse 5, it emerges from the same root word as adorn in verse 4. In other words, those who have been glorified or adorned by God must glorify and adorn God with their praises. Another thing that we must remember is that the context for this praise is an assembly celebrating a divine victory not seeking to prosecute one the victory actually has already been accomplished Just think back to the songs and the dancing and the tambourines there in verse 3 since it's an assembly celebrating a divine victory that's why it's appropriate for there to be swords and songs and beds you see the beds there the beds In view here are more like couches that you would find at a banquet. A victory feast hosted by a conquering king for his army. So what victory are the people of God celebrating? As I said, some have proposed that it's after the return from exile, that victory there. But if I can be honest with you, I think that the language of these verses tends toward a victory bigger than the return from exile. If these verses are celebrating God's victory in the return from exile, they're outkicking their coverage. The victory here sounds like the end time judgment and victory. God's people are looking forward prospectively to that event in praise. The victory sounds to me like that final victory of the messianic king of Psalm 2. But not just his victory, his people joining in with him in the judgment. I'm struck not only by the parallelism in this psalm itself, which you see there. Swords and songs are are held in parallel. And what happens in Hebrew parallel, and actually there's parallelism all throughout the psalm, but what happens in Hebrew parallelism is that these ideas in parallel are meant to explain one another, to expound one another. But there's not only parallelism in this psalm, there's also seemingly parallelism in the psalter itself. This 2nd to last psalm seems to be an echo of the second psalm in the psalter. It's almost as if the second to last psalm echoes the promises of the second psalm and assures us that they will be fulfilled. So if you, if you remember Psalm 2, or if you were to flip there and just scan your eyes across it, then you'll remember that the kings and the nations, that they conspired against the Lord and against His anointed. The nations raged and they plotted in vain. They declared that they would break the bonds of God's anointed king. But what do we find here? We find the kings of the earth bound in chains and nobles their fetters of iron. In Psalm 2, we're told that God's messianic king would rule from God's holy hill. And what do we find here in verse 7? We find the nations being subjected to vengeance and punishment. It's as if they've been summoned before the judgment throne of God's anointed king. The kings of the earth and the nations in Psalm 2 were warned to be wise. They were told they should kiss the son. They should rejoice in his rule. They should take refuge in him or else his wrath would be quickly kindled And in fact, there's a sense in which the judgment written there in verse 9 was a judgment written in Psalm 2, verse 9, which says this, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But once again, this is not just the judgment of the messianic king. It's the judgment of the messianic king and his people. In fact, this is their honor, verse 9. It is their honor to be an instrument of God's justice as they carry out His sentence of judgment on the nations. We're all very familiar with Deuteronomy 32, 35, and Romans chapter 12, verse 19, right? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, so we're to leave vengeance to the Lord. But what we're discovering here, and honestly what we discover in other passages of Scripture, is that God's people will be involved in that final judgment in the final display of God's vengeance and judgment on the last day. So for example, last week we read from Revelation 19. We were told that God's people will be present at the last judgment. And the same truth is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 24. You know, the Apostle Paul, he even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3 that God's people are going to judge the angels. Now it's, it's hard for us to imagine that scene right on the last day. That we will be a part. We will be involved in God's judgment on the last day. So, how does it apply? How does Psalm 149 apply to our lives today? I mean, we're not at the last day, right? So we've got to think about how this applies to today. What this means for us today. Should we, should we take up swords and sing songs and slay the ungodly in God's judgment with God's judgment. How would you answer that question as a New Testament Christian? Should we take up swords and sing songs and slay the ungodly with God's judgment? My answer is a qualified but emphatic yes. The New Testament reminds us that in this present age, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. We take up, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. Listen to these words from Derek Kidner. He writes, Our two-edged sword is the word of God, created to destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God. Our equivalent of binding kings with chains is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, we're not at that last day. We are presently in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual battle. But we're not at that victorious messianic banquet yet. In this present age, we do not take up physical swords to bring God's judgment as moons are thought and taught. No, we wield the sword of the Spirit. We speak and we sing the Bible. And as we speak and we sing God's word, God delivers His justice and His judgment proleptically. In other words, He delivers His justice and judgment before the final event. But as we speak and sing the Bible, God also delivers sinners from that final judgment. And He gives them a seat at that table of the Lord Jesus Christ on that great last day. And so this is our task today. We take up the sword of the Spirit. We sing songs of the risen Lamb. And we slay the ungodly with God's gracious offer that the Lord Jesus Christ has been judged in their place for them. This is how we conquer. We pray and plead that God would subdue and save rebels. That's what's happened with us. You see, our worship is our warfare. Our worship is our warfare. Where we speak the Bible and we sing the Bible. We tell the world that Christ has been raised in victory from the grave. And that He will be victorious on the last day. We will reign with Him. And so we declare His divine victory and invite the lost to share In the celebration feast with Jesus by following him in faith today and this is where I want us to conclude I think that we need to be more active in our warfare than we have been why not engage this warfare in our families as we speak and sing the Bible to one another in family worship why not do this with our co-workers why not be bold And risky and start a bible study why not do this with the children of our church teaching them from god's word in sunday school this is our present honor and calling the lord jesus calls us to go and make disciples he calls us this is our present honor and duty to warn our friends and family members and neighbors and co-workers of the judgment that is to come And calling them to escape it. This is our present honor and duty to tell our friends and families and neighbors and co workers that Christ has borne the judgment for sin. This is our present honor and duty to invite them to worship Christ personally and publicly. This is our present honor and duty. And it's not just our honor, it's also our privilege to praise the Lord. For he delights to show mercy, to deliver sinners from the judgment. And if this is our end, if this Psalm 149 here, the the picture is of the the Messianic banquet where we're rejoicing in the final victory of Christ, our Savior and King. Then may the Lord give us zeal to invite others to share in Christ's victory and to praise Him with heart and soul and mind and strength. Brothers and sisters, in glory, these words will be on your lips. Revelation 5.13. To Him who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Our God will adorn us with glory and honor on the last day. Let us adorn him with glory and honor in the presence of others on this one. Proclaim his love and praise the Lord.